Well, I'm excited to be back in the book of Daniel. It has, uh, it's been a while. We took a break there for uh, a month. We had, uh, Dan Winberg was here the one week and then the other three weeks, we kind of worked through our purpose statement. So I'm very excited to be back in Daniel and we are coming back into Daniel in a very exciting chapter. We're gonna be in Daniel chapter nine today. And chapter nine contains the 70 weeks prophecy. This is one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament. And this prophecy is given as a response to Daniel's prayer. But this 70 weeks prophecy, this is the basis for our belief that there will be a seven year tribulation right before Jesus returns at his second coming. I have found that usually when people ask me about the end times, this is the kind of stuff that they're asking about. It's super interesting, and I think we're gonna have a lot of fun with it. You're gonna be amazed when you see the way that this prophecy aligns with the life of Christ and things like that. So I'm super excited to study this prophecy together, and it's gonna be a ton of fun when we do that next week. This week, we've got 19 other verses to get through. We often like to run through some things to get to the really exciting passages of Scripture, but the first 19 verses are just as inspired as verses 24 through 27 where we find that 70 weeks prophecy. And we don't wanna rush right there and miss what God has to say to us in those first 19 verses. Right, Daniel's uh, first 19 verses, this is a prayer to the Lord and that second part of the chapter, verses 24 through 27, those are the answer to the prayer. Right? Why, so why are we going to read Daniel's prayer of confession and lament over Israel's sin when we can get to the cool future prophecy that everybody wants to know about? As I said, it's just as inspired and it helps us understand what God has called us to do in prayer and the way he has called us to pray. We need to stop and ask, why did Daniel write down this prayer? Because we saw Daniel pray in chapter six, but he didn't record the words of that prayer. So why now has he decided to record his prayer word for word? That should stop, and it should cause us to stop and ask, why is he doing this? And I think that in recording his prayer, Daniel leaves a model for what prayer should look like to a Jewish people who have, for the most part, turned away from God. They're not really a praying people at this point in their history. And Daniel's desire is that as a whole, the Jewish people would turn back to God. And if they would do that, then this prayer can act as a model teaching them how to pray. So my hope is that Daniel 9 provides a helpful guide for us when it comes to prayer as well. Now, certain pieces of the passage are gonna require further explanation, and we're gonna work through that, especially once you get into the heart of the prayer. So I'll explain those things, and then we'll consider how that influences the way that we pray, even still today as Christians. So you can turn with me to Daniel chapter nine. The last time we were in Daniel, we were in chapter eight. We ended there, and Daniel was left overwhelmed and appalled because he saw this vision of God's people being overrun with incredible persecution. Now we find ourselves in Daniel 9, and we find Daniel, yet again, is overwhelmed. He's fasting, and he's covered in sackcloth and ashes, and he's crying out to God in prayer. Read with me from Daniel 9, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, 
who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to seek the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So sometime during the first year of Persia's reign, they've toppled Babylon. Persia is in control now. And then Daniel is reading the writings of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had likely been dead for about 30, a little bit more than 30 years at this point. But the Jews who remained faithful to the Lord, even in exile, they recognized him as a prophet. They recognized he spoke authoritatively. And so it was in reading uh, the words of God through Jeremiah that Daniel discerned that the desolations on Jerusalem would last for 70 years. And the desolations there is the judgment that's been fallen, befallen them. Jerusalem is a ghost town. Babylon took them all into exile. But I want to look at Jeremiah very briefly, just a couple of verses, so you can follow on the screen or you can just listen as I read it. But Jeremiah talks about this in chapter 25 in verses 11 and 12. He says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So God spoke through Jeremiah and he told the people that because you have rebelled against me, because you have failed to keep my commands, I am going to make Jerusalem a wasteland and a desolation. He said, I'm going to turn this into a ghost town and give you all into the hands of Babylon. And you're going to be that way for 70 years. But after 70 years, God says, I'm going to judge Babylon. And I'm going to bring them to ruin for their sins and their iniquity. If we kept reading in Jeremiah, you'd see in 29, Jeremiah tells him that God also says that he will bring them back to Jerusalem after the 70 years are completed. Now, one question that's worth considering here, and the question that Daniel was certainly considering, is when did this 70-year period start and end? When can we expect this to be over? When can we expect to go back to Jerusalem? There's really two options here. So these are the two that, that scholars, these are, these are the two main options. First, it could have started in 605 BC. That was the year that Babylon came in and they took the first exiles from Jerusalem and carried them away to Babylon. And if it started in 605, then it would have ended in 538 BC when Cyrus, the king of Persia, permitted the Jews to return home. The problem here is that this time frame is only 67 years, not 70 so if we accept this view, then Jeremiah was using the number 70 as a round number rather than an exact number of years. A second alternative is that the 70 years started in 587 BC. That was when the temple and the city of Jerusalem were, were completely destroyed and ransacked and leveled. And then the 70 year period would have then ended in 517 BC when the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt. The problem with this view is that Jeremiah really seems to tie the end of the 70 years to the judgment of Babylon. 
And by 517 BC, Babylon had already been judged. They'd been out of the picture for about 20 years or so. So what do we do with that? How do we reconcile these, these potential options here? There's a lot of brilliant and faithful believers on either side of this, way smarter than me, some that disagree with me, some that agree with me. I think there's compelling arguments for either position. I lean towards that first view. I think it more closely fits with the description that Jeremiah gives, and I think it fits with Daniel's motivation to pray here because it seems to be praying because he thinks the 70-year period concluded when Babylon fell. And so I think Jeremiah was using a round number to talk about the, the lengthy period of time that Israel would endure this judgment. But in my opinion, Daniel believes when Babylon fell, that 70-year period came to an end, or at least it was very, very close to coming to an end. So Babylon has fallen. Daniel goes back, reads what Jeremiah has to say, and then he sees that God said, when the 70 years is over, when Babylon's been judged, you're gonna go back to Jerusalem. This should be cause for celebration and rejoicing, should it not? They've been in exile for so long and they get to go home. But in verse three, Daniel turns his face to the Lord to seek him by prayer and with fasting in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel's distraught. He's upset. He's saddened at this. He sees the exiles coming to an end, but God's people have not returned. See, Daniel knows the Lord will honor his word, but what good is it to take the Jewish people home if they're going to continue disobeying the Lord anyways? Right? They're going to end up right back in this same position. But I think what we're seeing here from Daniel is that ultimately he's driven to pray by the word of God. It's this promise of God restoring his people that motivates the prayers of Daniel. His request that we're going to see in a few minutes, it's, it's based upon the promises of God in his word. And so I think this is the first thing that Daniel teaches us about prayer, that our prayer should be driven by the word of God. Our prayer should be driven according to the word of God. Daniel sees what God has promised to do, and so that promise shapes the way that Daniel's going to pray. And we're gonna see other elements in this prayer, but when, but when Daniel does make his request, he's asking God to do what he's already promised to do. God's word is the primary determining factor in what Daniel prays for. So yes, he's gonna pray for the restoration of Jerusalem, but God has promised to do that already. I think today for us as Christians, we could say the same. Our prayers should be stuck on God's words, just like Daniel's were. I mean, read the way that Paul prayed for believers in his letters, and you should pray that way for yourselves and for our church and other churches. In John 17, he prayed that, that God would unify his followers, that he would sanctify them in the truth of his word. Those are amazing things to pray for yourself and other believers. We should pray that God would unify this body, that he would unify us around his word and mature us through his word. Jesus promises peace beyond all understanding, so we should be driven to pray for that peace because if we ask, Jesus is faithful to give it. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't request anything the Bible doesn't mention. But I think that as a rule, we should allow God's word to determine the content of our prayer. Because when we do that, we can be sure that we're praying according to the will of God. And I think when we plead for God's will to be done, what you'll find is that slowly your will 
will start to align with his. Verse four shows us another element that should be present in our prayer as well. Daniel begins his prayer of confession for sin, but before he ever gets to the confession, he comes and he praises God for his incredible faithfulness and love. Daniel recognizes who he's speaking to in prayer. I remember when I was in high school, uh, my mom picked my brother and I up from school one day, and my mom was trying, like what parents do, trying to have a conversation with my brother. He was in the front seat, just wanted to hear how his day was going. And my brother had seen a post on social media earlier that week, and it said something along the lines of, when you see my headphones in, it's not an invitation for a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, My younger brother thought this was a good thing, an appropriate thing to say to his mother, who was asking about his day. And and I had to follow up with him, because in my mind, I thought I remembered him getting slapped, but he swears that didn't happen. He just said mom was really, really mad. But he said it was her fault because she kept interrupting at the best part of the song. Um, he, was, he was joking about that, I promise. <laughs> but that is not how you speak to your parents, right? How many of you have ever had that? You say something and instantly you regret it and you get that death there and they're like, who do you think you're talking to? And they're looking at you like, yeah, I can take you out of this world. It was one of those moments for my brother. When children talk to their parents, there's a level of respect that needs to be maintained. The same is true when you speak to your boss at work, your manager, even more so if you're speaking to the CEO of your company. So how much more respect needs to be shown when we are praying to the sovereign king of all creation? So number two, our prayer should be filled with reverence and worship. Daniel remembers who he's speaking with. And that leads him to worship before doing anything else. And again, this doesn't mean that that your prayers are invalid if you don't spend five minutes praising God for his many attributes. It doesn't mean that it's never appropriate to pray and jump straight to asking God to meet your needs. Because sometimes that, that is a demonstration of your faith and your dependence on God, and that's a good thing. But if your times of prayer are entirely devoid of praise and worship, then I challenge you to consider whether you are showing God the proper reverence or are you just using him as a magic well to throw your coin in and cast your wish. As we pray, let our prayer be guided by the word of God and let us take the time to give him the praise that he so rightly deserves. Let's look back at Daniel 9. Pick back up in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as it is this day, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside 
refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he has spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord, our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord, our God, is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. This section of lament over and confession for sin makes up the vast majority of Daniel's prayer. Daniel confesses the sins of Judah almost 20 different times in these verses. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We were wicked. We turned aside. We refused to obey. We rebelled. We did not entreat the Lord's favor. We have sinned. We have acted wickedly. Now you notice there's a lot of repetition in this section as well. This doesn't mean we have to endlessly repeat ourselves when we confess our sins to the Lord in prayer. God is faithful to forgive us as soon as we confess to him. But remember that Daniel's prayer was also intended to be instructional for Jewish people who had strayed away from the Lord. And I think that's why Daniel's so repetitive here. He wants to ingrain into these people what faithful prayer looks like. And so he confesses on behalf of all of Israel It was Israel's kings, their princes, their fathers, all of the people who refused to listen to the prophets, listened to God's warnings to the people. So Israel as a whole is in the wrong. But God, Daniel says, is righteous. Righteousness belongs to him. Shame belongs to Israel. And the shame here is is the result of their disobedience. It's their punishment in exile. In verse seven, Daniel's making clear Israel has no justification for their sin. See, I think Daniel's anticipating that many of the Israelites might use the exile as an excuse. You know, say something like, well, God sent us into foreign lands. We didn't have a choice. We had to sin because this is how they do things over there in Babylon. We just had to survive. We adapted to our captors. But Daniel's saying, not so fast. God was not wrong to send us into exile. We earned that ourselves from our own treacherous sin. The sin we committed in exile as well is no one's fault but our own. And he doubles down on it in verse eight, saying pretty much the same thing. We deserve this exile. We were rotten to the core. Our kings, our princes, our fathers, every one of us was riddled with sin and we still are. That's the issue, period. But even still, There is hope because to God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Literally translated, that reads, to God belongs the mercies and the forgivenesses. And he uses the plural forms here to demonstrate the incredible depth of God's mercy and forgiveness. How willing he is to forgive us even when we stray and sin. And then the point that Daniel goes on to make in verses 11 through 14 is that it is ultimately... God's incredible mercy and forgiveness that motivated his judgment against his people. The exile does not demonstrate unfaithfulness on God's part, but actually demonstrates the opposite. See, the exile and the judgment of God, it proves God's faithfulness 
and trustworthiness. It proves that he was willing to keep his covenant. Daniel writes that because of Israel's sin, the curse and the oath from the law of Moses was poured out on the people. That's referring to the promises and the the promise of curse that God gave them when he gave them the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In both of those books, God, through Moses, gives the people his law. And he says, hey, this is how you ought to live. If you are serious about being my people, this is what it looks like. And if you do that, here's all these wonderful blessings for you. But if you don't do it, just know, here are all these curses for you. You will be judged, and I will hold you accountable, and I will punish you for your iniquity. And one of those promised judgments was the exile. And that's why Daniel says in verse 12 that he has confirmed his words. The exile proves that God will keep his word no matter what. God told us he would bring this calamity on us if we rebelled, and that's what he did. And and that's why Daniel can say that, that no other nation has experienced what Jerusalem has experienced. Because other nations, yeah, they've been conquered, they've been taken into exile, but who are their gods? They're lifeless blocks of wood and stone. This is the only time in history where God came down and sent his own people into exile. This is truly unique among the nations. God allowed his own holy temple, his own holy city, to be left in tatters and ruins because of Israel's sin. It was so serious, so systemic, and so woven into the fabric of Israel that God allowed his own reputation to be tarnished in order to judge them. And when we come to verse 13, Daniel hits the crux of the issue. The promised calamity written about in the law of Moses, it's come upon us, but we haven't entreated the Lord's favor. We haven't turned back to him yet. In Deuteronomy 28, God provides the the promise of judgment for disobedience, but then look at what he says in Deuteronomy 30. This is Deuteronomy 30, verses one to three. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. God promised that after these judgments were poured out, if the people of Israel would just repent and turn back to God, he would show them mercy. He would forgive them, welcome them back with open arms. He'd restore them back to the promised land. But as we've already pointed out, the problem here, the exiled Jews have failed to repent. The judgment of God should have moved these people towards repentance. But so far, they've stubbornly refused to do so. So God is righteous in all that he does, Daniel writes. Even in judging Israel, his desire was that it would bring you to repentance and restoration. Now, why does Daniel pray all of this? What is he teaching the people of Israel? How do we apply this to our own times of prayer? I think the third thing we see, our prayer should involve genuine confession that leads to repentance. Daniel doesn't gloss over any of the sins of Israel as if they're no big deal. He confesses them without excuse. He doesn't seek to justify their sin. We ought to do the same 
But sometimes we like to make excuses for our sin. God, I know it's wrong to cheat on my spouse, but I'm just not satisfied by them anymore. You know, I know it's, it's wrong to do, but fill in the blank. I shouldn't lash out in anger, but it's not my fault. I've been so stressed lately. I know I need to honor my parents, but they're just being so unreasonable, God. It's just not fair. In confession, we don't justify our sinful choices. We acknowledge them before God for what they really are, their sin. And then we ask his forgiveness and we rest in his mercy. I mean, think about it. If you, if you were to speak to your spouse unkindly, you would owe them an apology. And if you go to your spouse and you, and you say, honey, I am so sorry. That was rude, it was unkind. I should not have spoken to you that way. That'd be a pretty good apology. But if you follow that up with, but it's not gonna go well for you, right? And it's the same thing here. When you do that, you haven't really sought forgiveness. You've just tried to justify your own sinful actions. If you find yourself in prayer trying to explain to God why you had to make your sinful choice, you are not confessing your sin to him. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. So take a page from Daniel's playbook and own it. Don't try to dress it up, confess it and accept the grace and mercy of God and then turn away from that sin. There's another aspect of this confession though that we need to pay attention to. And I think it's something that we're probably less comfortable, less familiar with than confessing our own personal sin. Because we know from the first eight chapters, Daniel was a faithful guy, right? He's been very, very faithful in his time in, in Babylon and in Persia. He did not do many of the things that he's confessing here in his prayer. Daniel is confessing corporately. He didn't do these things, but he includes himself right along with them in confessing our sin. Corporate language to describe the sins. Pretty much every time in this chapter he's confessing sin, he's confessing it corporately. He's including himself in the guilt of the people of Israel. Because it wasn't just God's people as individuals who sinned, it was God's people corporately who sinned. As a collective people, they violated their covenant with the Lord. Daniel was not a king. He was not a leader of the Jewish people. He's simply one of the Jewish people, the Jewish people who violated their covenant. So even though he didn't commit these sins individually, as a member of God's chosen people, he includes himself among the guilty. And he rightly mourns over and confesses the sin of the whole. He didn't talk about those Jews over there who were super sinful and they disobeyed you, God, and there's the select few righteous ones over here like me. He just said, no, God, forgive us, for we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled against you. Therefore, we must repent. To try and bring this concept into our context a little bit better, uh, we ought to be a praying church. God has called his church to be a people of prayer. That's the example we see from New Testament Christians. We see that they were dependent on God through prayer. Now, we have both an individual responsibility as well as a corporate responsibility to be deeply committed to prayer. And so you can be the most faithful and devoted prayer warrior here, and as an individual, you could be doing what is right in God's eyes, but if as a church we are prayerless, then there is still an, a, some aspect of corporate guilt for being prayerless. 
You may be faithful, but it would still be appropriate for you to confess our sin of prayerlessness. It would be warranted to ask God to convict all of us, to give us corporately a a desire and a passion to be a praying church. And I wanna be clear too, this doesn't mean that, that corporate confession is needed every time an individual sins. But should any kind of sin take root in the church as a whole, the majority of the church, then Daniel shows us corporate confession and repentance is warranted, even if you're not the one who committed it personally. So for Daniel, confession takes up the majority of his prayer. He spends more time acknowledging his own sin and then asking for forgiveness than he does anything else. And so I would say, if confession isn't a regular part of your own times of prayer, I think you need to ask why. Because unless the answer is, well, I just don't sin that much, and I don't think it's that, then this should be a regular occurrence for each of us. Let's take a look at the last few verses here, verses 15 through 19. And we're gonna see Daniel's request here finally at the end. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel's no longer in confession mode here. He has a request to make. But even still, you can, you can see the humility and the reverence he has for God. He's recalling God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And Daniel is asking God to act in a way that is consistent with his own righteous character. He says, God, please turn your anger and your wrath away from your people because Israel has become the laughingstock of the nations. And so Daniel's asking God to be merciful to them, even though it was their own sin that made them a laughingstock in the first place. But Daniel's concern here is not just to spare Israel from further embarrassment. Look at verse 17. He says, Now therefore, God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. He says, For your own sake. Daniel is not chiefly concerned with Israel's reputation, he is concerned with God's reputation and glory. His concern isn't, oh no, we're in exile. His concern is, what does the world think about the Lord when they see his people in exile? Daniel is deeply concerned with God's reputation. And so Daniel boldly prays for God to establish his glory in the world. 
Look at the language he, he uses here. Verse 19, he says, Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention. Act. Do not delay. All of those words are imperatives, which usually means it's, it's a command that's being given, but Daniel's not that bold. He's not gonna command the Lord to do anything. He, he's not being arrogant or presumptuous, but he is being bold. He's desperate in this moment. And these imperatives, they show us the bold emotion that he's feeling right now. He's saying, God, please listen to me. Hear the prayer of your servant. Don't delay. Act on our behalf. Defend your reputation. Restore your people for the sake of your name and your glory. Through Daniel's words here, I think we see that that we also should be boldly praying for God to establish his glory. That's number four. We should boldly pray for God to establish his glory. This is ultimately what Daniel's request is about and what our prayers should also be about. In verse 18, he again acknowledges that the request is for forgiveness. It's not based on their own righteousness, but on the great mercy of God. So it it is about the restoration of Israel, but even more so, it's about God receiving the glory that he is due. That's what he's talking about in this whole last paragraph. Verse 15, Daniel reminds God of the name he established when he delivered the people from Egypt. Verse 16, act according to your righteous acts. Verse 17, for your own sake, make your face shine on your sanctuary. Verse 18, a city called by your name. Verse 19, for your own sake, your city, your people who are called by your name. Daniel is so concerned with God's glory and reputation. He he doesn't want the world to think the same way that they currently think about his people. He's wanting God to show the world who he is by forgiving Israel and gathering them back to himself. He says, I know we don't deserve it, but if for no other reason than your name and your glory, God, Have mercy on us so the world can see who you are. So Daniel has given us four principles that ought to shape our prayer life. Our prayer should be driven by God's word. Our prayer should be filled with reverence and worship. Our prayer should involve genuine confession that leads to repentance. And we should pray boldly for God to establish his glory. You may not do each of these four things every single time you pray, and that's okay. I don't. But these four elements should be a regular part of the way that we pray. I mean, church, let us together begin to pray more and more like Daniel. And to do that, you don't have to pray a whole Bible chapter's worth, but focus on building good habits of prayer and praying the way that God's word teaches us. If you're one of those people who finds it difficult to pray for more than 10 minutes, great. Pray for 10 minutes. Like, don't set a goal of praying for six hours. You're gonna fail. Pray what you got. So if you need to pray for 10 minutes, pray 10 minutes and make that 10 minutes a consistent habit. Pray for the things he has revealed in the Bible. Confess and repent your sin. Plead with God to help you be obedient and to use you to show his glory to the people around you so that they too might come to know Jesus. And I think, church, what you're gonna find is if you make this habit, if you make it a priority, if it's gonna be 10 minutes and you do 10 minutes faithfully every day, that 10 minutes is slowly gonna turn to 15 minutes 
15 will turn to 20, and so on. And as you commune with God in prayer, and you pray in these ways, your desire to pray will increase. And your desire for his glory will increase as well. And that's the ultimate goal of faithful prayer in the first place. If there's one big idea from this text today, I think it's that God's glory is the focus of faithful prayer. That's the point. Our prayer should be driven by God's word, and when it is, we demonstrate trust and obedience, which glorifies God. We should worship God in prayer, and when we do, we're showing him the respect and honor he deserves, which glorifies God. When we confess and repent and we do those things, God is glorified because we're recognizing that he is the one who has the authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. Everything that Daniel prays for in this chapter is either directly or indirectly aimed at God's glory being established for all people to see. And again, this doesn't mean we don't take our needs and our requests to God in prayer. He delights in those things. He loves that we go to him with our needs. But we should continually seek to align our desires with God's desires. And our own personal desires should be secondary to our desire for God to be glorified across the earth. Daniel's request here for God to restore Israel, to return them to their land, it's deeply personal. He would love to go home. It's a good thing that Daniel desires that, but it's secondary to his desire for God's glory. So do you and I, do we pray for God's glory to be established? And what I mean by that is that do we pray that the world would look and see who God is and and rightly give him the honor he deserves? Do we pray that the world would know Jesus and they would come to obey the Lord? It should be the desire of our hearts to see God's glory established in our lives, in this church, in the global church, in the whole world. We should pray that we would be God's instrument to establish his name in our workplace, in schools, at practice, on our teams, here in the community of Belleville. And I'm gonna close by praying toward that end. But I challenge all of you to let the way that Daniel prays influence and shape the way that you pray. Take these four things and make them a regular part of your times of prayer. Let us commit together as a body to praying for God to use us to establish his glory in the community of Belleville. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for such clear examples like Daniel's prayer. So often we feel maybe that we don't know how to pray, we don't know what to say, but your word shows us so clearly. Lord, and I pray that we would pray towards this end, that we would pray for your glory and your name to be established. God, that is our desire as a church. Not that we would grow and that people would think Redemption Bible Church is an awesome place. We do hope that, but we hope that because we want your name to be honored. We hope that through Redemption Bible Church, people would see the goodness of God, to see how good Jesus is and that they would come to know him just as we have. Lord, let us be an instrument for your glory in this community. Use us to establish your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.